Hi, Corona. Welcome to the Inner Circle Podcast, your source for the inside scoop on what's going on in Corona. We'll talk about some big projects happening in the city as well as get into the weeds on some things that you might be interested about. Make sure you subscribe, tune in, and join us in the conversation. All right, enough of that. Let's uh, get right to it. I'm Jacob Ellis, Corona City Manager, and I'm joined today by Karen Roper, our Homeless Solutions Manager. Karen, so first of all, for listeners, tell us about what you do for the city uh, and a little bit about you. Thank you. Yes, so I have the privilege to serve as the Homeless Solutions Manager. I've been able to work for the City of Corona since about November of 2019, and I had the opportunity to work with our city council and all our city departments and the community to really work on a very intense community engagement process to develop what we now have, which is our Homeless Strategic Plan. And the topic of homelessness can sometimes be very difficult, scary, and confusing for people. So I'm excited that we can talk about it a little bit more today for our viewers. Yeah, I agreed. Homelessness, one of the most difficult topics that we tackle as a city. As I like to tell people when they call in to complain, is if this was an easy problem, we would have already solved it by now, right? So I think something that uh, adds a dynamic that I'd like people to understand about you is a little bit about your story. Uh, and why your uh, your lived experience has given you a passion for dealing and working on homeless-related issues. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I'd love to share my story. So I had teenage parents who both were 16 when I was born, and then a year into their marriage, my father started exhibiting serious uh, mental illness. He was uh, subsequently diagnosed with schizophrenia paranoia, and because of the issues that he was dealing with, it was very difficult for a teenage mom. They separated early on. So I had the opportunity to spend time with mom during certain times of the year, with dad during certain times of the year. And dad was sometimes would be very stable if he was on his meds. Other times he would go off of his meds. He would self-medicate. He would become unstable in life and actually has moved in and out of homelessness. He was in and out of mental health institutions. It was a, a very difficult childhood experience. And then later... My own mother tried to commit suicide, and I actually found her unconscious when I was in fifth grade. And she did survive. Uh, She was in a coma for about a month and subsequently woke up. And then it was a very difficult time because Child Welfare Services was monitoring her, her parenting skills to make sure that she was fit to be able to have my sister and I as her children. There are many other things that I could share with you, Jacob, but honestly, When I reflect back on those very difficult experiences, especially since when I was 17, my father ultimately committed suicide because of his mental illness, I look back and I think about those experiences, and I like to tell people, when you have the most challenging experiences in your life, to look at it as an opportunity to be a transformational change agent And so at an early age, I wanted to be able to make a difference in the lives of others. I actually started working for the county when I was right out of high school and immediately plunged myself into different jobs to help people. So for me, when I talk to others that are experiencing challenges, especially the issue of homelessness, I like to be able to reflect back on my experience and explain to people that we can actually be strengthened by our difficult challenges and that they always present an opportunity. Absolutely. That's amazing. I didn't know that you started with the county right out of high school. Yes. Um, 
And let's let's follow that a little bit too. And, and first of all, though, I want to say thank you for sharing that personal story. So you started out of high school at the county. Yes. And where did that ultimately lead to? What did you end up doing for the county before you uh, retired in 2015? Was 2016. It? 2016. Yes. yes. So basically, I started as a, a typist clerk too. But my passion was really to get involved in work community work. So I just kept working hard and applying for different positions, and I just kept getting promoted. I, at that time, I didn't even have a degree. In fact, I didn't get my bachelor's and master's until later in life, 2005 and 2007. So it was just passion and a sincere desire to really make a difference. So I started with community engagement work and then got into affordable housing programs and then got into um all a whole gamut of different types of community services helping people in crisis in different uh, populations, whether they were seniors or veterans or families or people without jobs. Um, then what happened is in the 90s, the homeless issue became extremely a difficult uh, political issue for the county. And there were many, many homeless families that were living in motels and the media was covering it. And the Board of Supervisors decided to establish a homeless czar position in the county executive office. And uh, some people actually encouraged me to apply, even from the CEO's office. And I was, that job is too big for me, and it's too political, I'll be dealing with all of these different cities and county agencies and stakeholders, and especially at a very difficult time in Orange County's history. After I reflected on the opportunity of worrying about my own inadequacies, thinking about what my vision was, again, taking myself back to my childhood, was I forgetting that there's an opportunity to help so many people, to really be an advocate for those that don't have a voice? So I, I ended up saying yes to the job, and I had the opportunity to serve in the county executive office, where I worked with all of the county agencies and all of the cities. It was a, a really wonderful time to do some transformational work in Orange County. And then from there, uh, in 2008, I was encouraged to apply to be the director of the Housing and Community Services Department. So that was a whole continuum of care and homeless programs, all affordable housing development, uh, veterans services office, senior programs. It was the 200 employees and about $250 million a year budget. But that's not what is impressive about it. What is impressive about it was the opportunity to work with so many amazing people to take multiple funding sources and integrate them around an issue to do strategic planning. And that's where you can really move the needle, is if you can focus goals and strategies and resources and you stay on a targeted path, you can make a big difference. So that was really exciting, amazing work. And I stayed in that position until I retired in 2016. And I actually didn't retire because it was like some magic number to hit 35 years, which actually I had hit 35 years at that time. It was because I had two grandparents who were in their mid-90s who needed 24-hour uh, care. And so they had moved in with my husband and I, and I decided that it was time to now give family priority. Not that I wasn't given family priority for, before, but they, they really needed us. Because I had served in senior programs, and I used to always tell the community, Family members should not relegate their relatives to institutionalized care. So I wanted to practice what I preached, which was care for my family members. And so that's what I did. I had the privilege to support them and give them love and care like they had done for me my whole entire life. And I had the opportunity to do that up until their last days. And grandma and grandpa passed away in 2018 and 2019. 
So it wasn't long after that that a really neat opportunity that I wasn't expecting surfaced with the city of Corona. Which which is sort of what brings us here today. But I have to say, incredible story. I think it's uh, it's really beautiful to see the way that somebody with the right passion and dedication can not only reach their career goals, but make a real difference in, in the community. And even though you had already put in 35 years, accomplished a lot, you had a great career, you could have easily rested on your laurels and said, I've, I've done my bit. Uh, you decided to come out of retirement, and that's how you joined the city of Corona back in 2019. Actually, interestingly enough, uh, you got here a week before I did. That's right. So we uh, we almost started at the same time. So that brings us to kind of where we are today. I wanted to talk a little bit about our point-in-time count. Those are done every year. Um, they're done across the country. And I, and I wanted to sort of start in 2019 and then talk forward to where we're at today. We just finished our last point-in-time count. Tell us, when you started with the city in 2019, versus today, what are some things that have happened with our point in time count? So when we set out to develop the homeless strategic plan, what we learned is that we had a very large unsheltered street population. So at the time, right before the plan was developed in 2019, the count of the homeless at that time, the point in time count, we had 164 unsheltered people on the streets. That doesn't represent the whole universe of homeless. It's those that are just on the streets. So That really became sort of our baseline because when we developed the plan, the community, our businesses, the residents, all all of the stakeholders acknowledged that that was a big challenge for us. All of these folks that were dying on the streets, that having impacts to our businesses and residents, we needed to focus on the unsheltered homeless. So we, we developed the plan around that. But going back to 2019, we said, okay, we have 164 unsheltered homeless We know now what we want to be able to do is target our goals and strategies to develop this system so that we can begin to systematically reduce that number. And of course, in 2023, you fast forward, we conducted the annual count of the homeless. So that number went from 164 to 65, which is a testimony to the amazing work and I say work of this entire community in the city of Corona, from our city departments and our contracted nonprofits, our community partners, our county partners. It's been a concerted team effort to be able to achieve that big of a reduction in unsheltered homelessness. And that that annual count of the homeless is really important. It is something that is mandated by Congress. And the reason why Congress mandates it is because they want to be able to haven't make informed decisions for funding so that those numbers not only inform in terms of how many people are living on the streets, but the different subpopulations, whether they be veterans or people living with mental illness or families with children or people that are struggling with substance abuse or veterans. And there are all different types of interventions and strategies depending upon those subpopulations. So it helps with program design, it helps with funding, it helps with strategies. So it's really important for the community to know that it's more than just some, you know, annual exercise to count people. And and we kind of liken it to the census. We know how important the census is. Our government uses that for a lot of different things. And, And the same applies to the count of the homeless. So for us to take that time, which by the way, we have many community volunteers that come alongside of our police department, homeless outreach and psychological evaluation team and our nonprofit CityNet. And they, our HOPE team and CityNet have already worked together to pre-identify what is called known locations. 
so that we can take our community volunteers on the day of the count, know where our unsheltered homeless are living on the streets to be able to get an accurate count of the homeless. I love it. I want to just go back and celebrate again. 164 yes. down to... 65. 65. Yes. 61% reduction. That's incredible. I'm not saying that some other city hasn't accomplished this. I just don't know of any that have seen that kind of reduction in the state of California within the span of time. If there is one, you know, somebody should call in and tell us who that is. I don't know who it is. But that's an incredible achievement. And one of the things you touched on that I want to just explore for another second with you is how the community came along with this and the support that we got. So when you started in November 2019, you began working immediately on a home strategic plan. That was the original vision was just help us get a plan together. That's all we need. Yes. And of course, that evolved from there. The plan was adopted June of 2020, June 2020. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that from my perspective that really made that plan so successful is the way that you brought the community into that conversation. Homelessness is a challenge for any community. And oftentimes you get people at odds that haven't bought into the process or the plan or where we're headed. And I think one of the things that I want to give a shout out to Corona residents is that we got so much support from people on all ends of the spectrum. We had, uh, you know, folks that, that might be a little cranky and just say, hey, why don't you just deal with this already? And then you had other people who really wanted us to be more compassionate and, and provide a lot more services. We found a way to bring all of them together as part of your homeless strategic plan working group, get them in the same room. And I think that journey that people took with you leading that process was allowed them to become educated and find consensus on the best path forward. And I think that's something that's worth highlighting is is the support of our community, in my opinion, is really what has helped us make greater strides than when you can't get all people kind of rowing in the same direction. And so incredible outcome. We're very excited to see where that goes from here. I think it's important to also take this in context of what's going on, not just in Corona, not just within the Inland Empire, not in South Southern California, in the state of California. Homelessness is an epidemic across the country. We're seeing this everywhere. Talk a little bit about sort of some of the challenges that we've had with state regulations and laws that have sort of made it more challenging to do what some folks would like us to do in terms of just make the problem go away. Why is it that we can't just make the problem go away? Well, a lot of the, that education came out through our community engagement process where we wanted all of our stakeholders to feel very comfortable to say whatever and however they felt about the issue. And you're right, there were people that were extremely concerned about impacts to their businesses or families going to parks and worried about folks that are camping out or using yeah. drugs. And so what we set out to do on this journey is to explain the things that are within our control and the things that are outside of our control and how we develop goals and strategies to work within those parameters. So let me give you some examples of the discussions that we had in the community. A lot of our residents didn't realize that there is this case law that affects the entire Western United States, and the case law is called Martin versus Boise. And that basically went clear up through the whole appellate court process onto the Supreme Court so that all of the states uh, in the Western U.S. must comply with the case law, which basically means that law enforcement may not enforce anti-camping laws unless a shelter bed resource is offered. Why did that happen? Because the courts determined that it was unconstitutional for uh, to arrest and jail people if they had nowhere to go. Basically, almost uh, like it can't be illegal to exist. 
So if they if they have nowhere to go and they're camping in public spaces, then um, if they're going to be told they can't camp in public spaces, then local government must tell them, you know, where you can go, which is offering a shelter bed. Or if you don't have a shelter bed, where you can camp. And that had a major impact on cities because cities weren't ready for this, right? Cities they, didn't all have homeless shelters. They didn't have beds to put people in. And so yes. when this court ruling came out, cities had to scramble and everyone had to take a pause and say, well, what do we do now? Um, we, we can't just arrest people. Uh, there's, you know, as you said, it's it's like uh, criminalizing the fact that you're poor yes, or criminalizing the fact that you exist and have nowhere else to go. And so cities were left in this position of nowhere else to take people. But at the same time, we all continue to get phone calls and complaints about people calling in and saying, why haven't you done something? There's people camping over here. Or there's people camping over there. So that really put cities in a difficult position. What other system-wide challenges have exacerbated this problem, uh, both for us as well as in the state? Yes. Well, kind of just following along with what you had mentioned with the whole dynamic of Martin versus Boise, some of the other challenges were, and I've really seen this throughout my career, you can take a look at the concept of Martin versus Boise uh, and I've seen cities do this where they say, okay, well, we have this situation, but county, it's your responsibility. The homeless issue is your responsibility. You get all the funding. The cities don't have the funding. You need to do something. And I've heard that my entire career. It's, <laughs> this isn't a city problem. Yes. This is a county problem. The state and the counties are supposed to deal right. with this. They deal with social service problems. Cities don't. Uh, this isn't our problem to deal with. Yes, and actually, because I spent 35 years in county government, I had that experience with many cities who said that. And really, it's just this vicious circle that is non-productive. It does nobody any good, and the community just continues to deteriorate. The businesses continue to be impacted. The residents, people die on the street for a, a number of different reasons. So it's non-productive. And so what changes that dynamic is kind of like what we did here. When we set out to develop our strategic plan, the first thing that we did was invited our neighboring cities to be a part of the conversation. And we invited the county to be a part of the conversation. We had them at the table along with us talking about these tough issues. And actually, one of the outcomes of those discussions was we ended up developing a partnership with the city of Norco. Yes. So here's two cities that said, you know what? We we are connecting cities. We both have unsheltered homeless in our cities. There are long-term residents. Little bitty Norco didn't have the staffing resources to manage their own programs. So they came under our umbrella. And now the city of Corona manages the homeless programs for the city of Norco. Win, win, win. You know, just really trying to get to the bottom of let's move away from this your responsibility, not our responsibility to what can we do to build capacity in cities. And so that's one of my visions, because I also happen to be the, the chair of the Riverside County Continuum of Care, spent a lot of time with the county working to build capacity. And that's important because that affects the issue of homelessness. Why? When cities and counties haven't worked together, I think that's a lot of the reasons why California has remained the state with the highest homeless population in the nation. That conversation, that dynamic is changing now. We have different subregions in um, Riverside County that are working together and looking to develop partnerships, looking to see maybe how they can replicate Corona. In fact, I'm excited to tell our listeners that the county and even the California League of Cities has used the Corona model as an example because Corona partnered with the county. The county has resources that they've invested, but the city has invested resources out of Measure X, which is, again, a conversation with the community. So when you have a city that has skin in the game, 
and they make an investment, then the county says, oh, we want to get behind that and make an investment. Then the community gets with us. And so you have this maximized ability to help many more people. So that is a really a big hindrance when you don't see that level of collaboration and integration. There are some other things that we did explain to the community that are challenges. Some people don't realize that you can't mandate mental health and drug treatment. Yeah, that's, let's talk about that for a second yeah. because Care Court was announced last year. I think there was a little bit of misunderstanding. The bill went through some changes. What does Care Court do and not do? So there is an opportunity to make a referral so that a person will appear before a judge for treatment and sometimes for diversion for, let's say, in lieu of incarceration. Mm -hmm. People can accept a treatment plan. So that is an incentive, right, diversion from incarceration. So that helps. But somebody can stand before the judge if you're the judge and I'm standing before you and you offer, you know, you say to me treatment, I can still say no. I have the right to say no. And a lot of the advocates really lobbied the legislature to make sure that the freedom of choice was not removed. And that's mm -hmm. a really tough debate because some people will say, I'll use my example. I think if my dad would have had mandated mental health treatment, he might be alive today. That's my perspective. I don't believe in stripping people of their rights, but sometimes when people are so ill and they're lacking self-care, I think it is our duty to try to help them. Uh, but the laws for conservatorship are still very strict, and the threshold is really high. So it's important for the community to understand that while we have these tools between care court, Laura's Law, or even homeless court, people still do have the element of choice. So people can say no to um, mental health and drug treatment. That's why what Corona has done to address some of those issues is develop what we call low barrier programs. That means we, we accept people where they are. We don't leave people where they are, but if they're in the grips of mental illness and drug addiction, we're gonna take them as they are. Again, systematic issues of how you'd start to think of it as like an onion and each piece is a layer you need to peel back. Some of the other system-wide issues that are difficult are things like the unique 40-year high inflation that we're experiencing. Or in California, and even this county, which used to be years ago, was a very, what we thought of as affordable housing, right, has changed. It's no longer that way. In fact, it's yeah. a very high-cost county. That's another system-wide issue. And then another thing I wanted to mention is Prop 47. Prop 47 has had a big impact on law enforcement. So a lot of times uh, before we had the opportunity to educate our community, why, aren't our, why isn't our police department arresting and jailing these homeless folks? Um, you know, they were shoplifting or they were camping illegally. Why aren't they doing things? And so what Prop 47 did, which was approved by the voters of California, by the way, not the legislature, so it's important for the community to know, it decriminalized what used to be felonies for um, drug possession for many types of drugs. Mm -hmm. So unless there's like quantities for drug trafficking, most people are not going to get arrested and get a felony on their record for drug possession. So it's, I think it's important for the community to know it's not our police department not enforcing drug laws, right? And same thing goes for theft, right? Yes. In fact, you can... Uh, and the community, especially the business owners, expressed frustration. People can go into a store and steal up to $950. They can calculate how much, and it's not a felony on their record. They can steal a car that has a blue book value of 
less than $950, it's not Grand Theft Auto. So just a lot of different dynamics that I think prior to our community engagement, the, the residents and the businesses maybe thought Corona wasn't doing its job. And once we had the opportunity to educate them about, okay, this is no excuse, but eyes wide open, these are some of the systems, state laws, case law, housing market, all these different factors that uh, we nece can't necessarily control. But mm -hmm. what can we do? So that's how we engaged in conversations about best practices to do what we could do. And even despite all of those challenges, all of those system things that we can't control, we know that best practices work because we just achieved that huge reduction in unsheltered homelessness. Yeah, the data shows that. Here's another thing I want to cover briefly, too, because this is the most common thing that I run into in, in uh, my office is that there's two sort of accusations that get leveled against local governments. The first is you're not doing anything about the problem. And I think in Corona, we've done a really good job investing not just our time, but also a lot of money into solving this problem. Yeah. And when I go out and talk to groups, um, people first want to know, what are you doing to solve this problem? And I'll explain all of the amazing work that you and our staff and our community partners and the county, all the work that's going on. And then it's almost invariably followed up by the next accusation, which is then you're going to create a magnet for all the homeless around the whole county to come into Corona and it's going to make it even worse. I, I want to make sure that we cover that topic yeah. so that people understand why our approach is unique and why we don't believe that that is what we're that, that's not the situation we're creating. Talk to us about all the work that we're doing and how we are approaching this to make sure that we don't become a magnet that just exacerbates the problem further by attracting more homeless into our community because we are offering these great wraparound uh, services. Love to, because uh, that is something that makes us unique, but the, the, we're carrying the message. And so one of the big values that we assigned and included in our uh, homeless strategic plan is good neighbor policy. Mm. So if you have a good neighbor policy, you have to address the notion of if you build it, they will come, right? So when we talked about cost, because that's really, you know, if you build it, they will come, and then how much is it going to cost? So we set out to do a homeless cost-benefit analysis, looking at cost impacts to our fire department, our police department, our parks, our senior center, our library, just all of these different <clears throat> costs for no solutions. So let's take a look at what those costs are. Then let's take a look at the data, and our data did show that most of our, like the high percentage of our folks that were here, long-term corona homeless had ties to our city. And Which then, is really important for people to understand. It is. These, these individuals, they're not unknown to us. They're not unknown. Our police hope team. Yes. They oftentimes know these people on a first name yes. basis. And while residents who are driving around might see someone who looks like an anonymous person that may have just showed up to town, what, what we know is a lot of these people have been in Corona for a long time. They have documentable ties. Yes. And we know that they, they are from our community. Yes. Well, and then to take that a step further is to, you know, our, our city council you as a city manager, you have a difficult job with a budget that you have to manage. You do not have unlimited resources. And in those really productive community discussions, we agreed, you know what? And I want to really thank our city council and you for this. Uh, we're going to be brave and courageous, and we're going to allocate a significant amount out of our budget to address homelessness because it was an issue that the community deemed critical for the city. But we don't have the ability to serve entire Riverside County, which, by the way, is 7,300 square miles. And so 
We set out to develop programs that were designed to serve people with ties to our city. And sometimes for the advocacy community or even people that are in regional programs, you know, like when I served in the county, we thought of things regionally because that's what you do. You're funded regionally and people can get caught on. They're in your city there. You should care for them. But sometimes people can just be have arrived in your city for a day because they heard about programs. And that's not a bad thing. People are in crisis. They need help. People are trying to find uh, resources for people in crisis, so they refer them. But what we've set out to do is to make it abundantly clear that uh, we do have compassion, but we don't have the financial resources to serve beyond our city. Now, if we have people that come to our city and need help, CityNet will conduct outreach and find out where their ties are and work really hard to get them connected to the appropriate city or appropriate resources. But for our sheltering programs, for our housing programs, you know, we focus on our residents. And it has served us well. Even just the home key project that we have, that we a partnership with the county, right? We just play, we have 52 corona households that were languishing on our streets, somewhere in our motel program that are now permanently housed. And I'm talking people that have been on the streets for years. So what I've tried to do with the different hats that I wear as the chair of the Continuum of Care is to educate the other shelter providers, housing providers, the other cities, and do this in collaboration with the county to say, we, we are so excited that we've made an investment and that we're, we're changing lives and we see the needle move. What can we do to use city A, city B, city D to help you build capacity? And let's help you tell your community, if you build it, they don't have to come if you develop programs to serve your community. It's it's an ongoing process, but I believe that we've been uh, very successful in achieving that, that balance. The other thing that I uh, wanted to mention to you, you know, when you're thinking about balance, is just getting back to the whole low barrier program. Because that, that was a discussion with the community that, that was really important. Because sometimes the community, you know, initially when they didn't have the details, they're like, everybody must, if you're going to help them, they must not be, they must um, have everyday drug testing. They no must drinking, have, no smoking, yes, no clean smoking, your room or yes, else. Yes, and, and you must have a job within so many days. And, and granted, we believe in accountability, and, but but when you have to look at the different subpopulations, so mm-hmm. someone that is like long-term mental, mentally ill, they're on SSI, they're disabled, they're not going to be able to be functioning in a job. And because they're mentally ill, they're self-medicating. If you create high threshold programs, which for a long time across the U.S., that's what happened, and that's why we ended up with this explosion in, in chronic street homelessness, you're never going to change the face of the community. So it's imp- what I'm excited about is we said we signed up to serve the most difficult, hard to serve. We knew it was going to be hard. We knew that it wasn't going to happen overnight. And by the way, our work's not done. So we can celebrate some success, but we're going to keep the sleeves rolled up, keep moving forward. But it's important to acknowledge serving chronically homeless, that it comes with people that are living with barriers. Again, you take them where they are. You don't leave them where they are. I love it. I think that that sort of is a natural segue to talking about that balance between compassion and accountability. And we, we again, are faced with individuals who we've both gotten the calls. Uh, they call in and say, I want you to throw the book at those people, arrest them all. And then we have people on the other side of that spectrum more on the compassionate side of saying, hey, 
leave them alone. We need to bring more food into this area. We need yeah. to feed them, clothe them. And so we've really had to look at that balance between that accountability and also making sure that we're able to um, show compassion to people that obviously are are in great need of help. They're obviously not living a good life. They're either mentally ill or they are dealing with substance abuse. They're not able to care for themselves. And so we are working hard to be able to balance that. At the end of the day, everyone wants the problem addressed. The question is, how do we get there? How do we how do we uh, address this in a way that is both compassionate as well as accountable? There's also another, there's a concept that sometimes floats out there that I want you to explain for people is the this idea of trauma-informed care. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that's really important because when you sign up to serve the highest barrier, longest term, chronically homeless, which a lot of people will shy away from because when you're looking at performance metrics, sometimes you don't necessarily achieve quick performance metrics. And I want to make that clear because there's a reason people have been on the streets for so long. Lots of barriers, right? That onion. So trauma-informed care is part of low barrier program models. And basically what it acknowledges is that there's a reason why people have been on the streets for a long time. For example, uh, we've uh, had a veteran uh, in our motel program who um, had combat, you know, tour of duty and was uh, had a severe injury, was living with severe chronic pain. And there are a lot, tend to be more resources for veterans, so we can usually get them placed in housing faster. So using trauma-informed care, he was dealing with severe drug addiction. And uh, when we placed him in the motel program, even when the case managers would come to meet him, he wasn't even hiding that he was still using drugs. And he was exited from our program a couple of times, but we took him back because he didn't, it wasn't drug trafficking. He didn't have, you know, wild parties. He didn't cause damages. He was living with severe chronic pain, and the prescription medications apparently weren't addressing the severe chronic pain, so he kept using. And it was heartbreaking because myself and Sitinet had been working with the VA. We had him lined up for all of the, you know, health care um, and additional support that he needed and a VASH voucher for veterans, and he just kept using. And so trauma-informed care, another example, you have someone who is constantly just in a drug stupor. Sometimes people have had like sexual trauma or domestic violence, or they are living with mental illness, or there's the death death of a family. But there's different reasons why people will self-medicate. It's not natural to be want to be in a drug stupor. So trauma-informed care basically, when we have our outreach workers, is building that relationship and then creating a customized case management plan that is going to get to the heart of the trauma. So again, meeting people where they are, helping them to acknowledge and see what is causing some of these behaviors, that is really super important. And and you need to be able to build that into the case management plan because um, human beings are complex creatures and it's never a one size fits all. I think that's a a really good for listeners to understand why we do it and why we approach it the way that we do. Now, during the last three years, we've uh, developed a strategic plan. You've been working really hard with our our community and county partners on building the system of services. We've also been doing a renovation during this time. Can you talk a little bit about what we've been renovating and what we're about to reopen in Corona? Yes. So I'm super excited about that. And I I do want to thank our city council because the city has made a $3 million investment And we have gone through a phase one and phase two renovation process. 
to transform a city-owned facility that um, is really a a 40-year-old packing house. It did serve um, in different times as a soup kitchen and a homeless shelter, but we wanted to transform it into a center, not just a shelter, but a center, like sort of the center of the strategic plan with multiple components. Mm-hmm. So again, with the low barrier concept, we've made it pet friendly because we know that our homeless residents, uh, if they have pets, they'll often say no to shelter because they don't want to leave their, maybe the one thing that gave them some sense of comfort and companionship. Yeah. Yeah. Also, we have a clinic partner. I'm excited to tell you that we've transformed the West Wing of the Um, Shelter Navigation Center into a clinic and Central Medico Community Clinic as a federally qualified health center, which is great because they can provide robust services, whether it's medical care, dental care, behavioral health care, so mental health treatment, drug, you know, treatment. And then also, of course, you know, Mercy House is our contracted operator. And they have a great experience. They're in over 68 different cities. They do this very well. They will have a very intense case management model. So wraparound services will be partnering with the county and other community partners to come on site and provide all types of services. So we'll have 30 beds for single adult males, five beds for single adult females, and then super excited about the partnership we have with Corona Regional Medical Center for what we call post-hospital recuperative care. So folks that are uh, homeless, that are discharged where they've had an illness or an injury, and maybe they're not acute enough for a hospital bed, but still recovering, uh, discharging to the streets just creates that cycle, uh, very expensive for taxpayers, All over again. back yeah. in the hospital bed, or people end up dying on the streets. So we have those post-hospital recuperative care beds in Central Medico, will be there as a partner to provide the care. Uh, so really just a full system of services. And then to take it a step further, we've integrated our housing resources. So we've allocated tenant-based rental assistance, which is like a monthly rental subsidy. So our clients that will graduate from the shelter or from our existing motel program, because we're still going to have that, will be able to have resources where we'll partner with landlords to help them with rental assistance. But wait, there's more. We also have our 12 housing units that the city owns that we have repurposed for permanent supportive housing. So similar to the Vista Dorada project for chronically homeless. So, and then to take it even a step further, you know, some of the feedback that we got from our residents and businesses during the strategic plan process was uh, our parks, namely City Park in particular, had a high homeless population and A lot of our wonderful faith providers who are critical to helping us were providing meal services in the parks, but really de facto because there wasn't a shelter where they could provide those meals. So now in partnership with the faith community, we're moving the meal serving out of the park. So instead of just providing a meal, managing homelessness on the streets, no, we want to end homelessness. So move that, we'll provide transportation, get people to the shelter navigation center. Hopefully when they see that there's a bed that they can sleep in, shower, bring their pets, access medical services, they're going to want to stay and then get connected to the most important thing, which is housing. So Mm -hmm. really an entire system of services to finish the work, right? I said our sleeves are still rolled up. We still have people on the streets. We want to get to functional zero. I appreciated earlier on in this, you talked about the support of our city council. We should probably give a shout out 
Uh, none of this happens without the support of our elected officials. And one of the things that I know I have appreciated, and I know you have appreciated, is that we're working with a city council that understands the problem, yeah. and they're not interested in pointing fingers. They're interested in getting their, or solving the problem and, and getting to that zero that we want in terms of homeless on our streets. So shout out to the Corona City Council for their incredible support over this time. It's not easy to start spending millions of dollars on one of these problems when historically it's something that people like to claim as another level of government that's supposed to take care of that. I also appreciate it, Karen, uh, for all of those listeners that grew up watching television in the 1980s. You gave a romp appeal, the infomercial king shout out when you said, but wait, there's more, <laughs> you know? I'm you know, dating order myself. Now, order now <laughs> and you will get, no, but uh, but there is so much more yes. to this as you talked about an onion, is that there's all of these different layers that we've put onto this. It's not an easy problem to solve. Yeah. And the solutions are complex and we have many different things that we're doing to address those. Super excited to see the shelter open here uh, at the end of May. You also talked about getting to functional zero. Yes. So that's a term. It's a it's a term of art that, that you use in the in this space. So talk about for people that don't know what functional zero is, what that means and what that means for our vision for the future yeah. of homelessness and corona. Well, I hope it's okay to share, you know, for me, Jacob, this is truly it's not a job, it's a calling in life. And I feel so privileged to serve in this space. And so you know that um, in December of 2022, because I feel it's a calling in life, I wanted to write some performance evaluation goals for myself mm -hmm. as um, somebody that gets to serve in the city. And so there were several goals, but two of them in particular that I do want to highlight. One was to get to reduction in unsheltered homelessness to 50% by the end of 24. That was December. So I never would have imagined, I mean, we had been working hard but I never would have imagined that then come January, the count results would reveal that we actually had achieved 60% by January of 23. So yeah. I, you know, just as a testimony to, to never be afraid to reach high for goals when you're looking at trying to improve the quality of life. The second goal for this city is that we can get to functional zero. And it is a technical term. And it's basically something that a uh, term that the federal government, the state government and county government uses. What does functional zero mean? Functional zero means that there has been a concerted effort to establish a system of services so that you can get all of your homeless residents who are unsheltered off of the streets and into shelter and, and housing. But it doesn't end there because we know that there, as people are moving out of homelessness, people are also moving into homelessness. Mm -hmm. People are, there are always going to be life tragedies, yep. death, divorce, you know, a, a whole host of different reasons why people will fall into homelessness. So it acknowledges that people will fall into homelessness, that you have a safety net that is there. So that the episode of homelessness, hopefully their episodes are rare, but they're also brief. Instead of this long waiting list for people to try to access shelter, access affordable housing, even have an outreach team to even talk to them, that there's an immediate response to, to address the issue so that uh, you can continue to manage it in a way that you can stay at functional zero. And that's what functional zero means. And I think that that's important because for a long time, you know, there was this notion of 10-year plans to end homelessness. And I think, you know, over time, people realized we have to acknowledge people will fall into homelessness. So it just means people off the streets and a system to respond. Yes, exactly. 
And for all of those listeners that are out there that are keen on on learning more about homelessness in Corona, what can what can our residents do to get involved? How can they help? There are, the table is huge, so thanks for asking. We like to characterize it as like time, treasure, or talent. There's many opportunities to volunteer. We will be uh, announcing in the future a web uh, link that will have direct access to Mercy House for people to volunteer at the shelter. But right now, if people were to Google uh, City of Corona Homeless Solutions, they'll get to our the Road Home website, and we, we have a place where people can email us at Homeless Solutions, and they can say they'd like to volunteer to serve at the shelter if they want to donate meals. People might have a particular talent that they will donate pro bono to support our nonprofit partners. People can make uh, tax-deductible financial donations directly to Mercy House or CityNet. And what that does is we say, keep it local in Corona, and then we can stretch our city resources further when people make financial donations. And we've had the community do that. Our businesses mm-hmm. have, um, the residents have. So we have a, a beautiful giving community in Corona. That's why I think we've been able to move the needle so far. But still lots of opportunities <clears throat> to come. Time, treasure, talent. And just Google City of Corona Homeless Solutions. You'll get to our website. You can email us and we will get you connected. Karen, thank you for being here today. I continue to learn a lot when we sit and talk. I hope our audience did as well. I hope people subscribe, join in to listen, and remember to come out and join us for our shelter grand opening uh, and stay tuned for the next episode. Thank you.